When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose. Joining me for The Bigger Picture is political commentator Mike Indian, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. And it talks about us uh, discussing the biggest pictures of the day. And of course, Nicholas Snowden resigning as first minister. Surely he has to be the big political story of of the moment, um, Mike. (laughs) But isn't yes. it, is it not a is it not a resignation of her own making, really? I mean, if you see what I mean. Uh, well, it depends what you mean by a resignation of her own making. So, so let's let's just start by saying that this is a complete surprise, and in politics, those are rare. There are very few things that happen in any sort of political sphere of life that are wholly unexpected. Yes. We can think of some things in terms of election outcomes, perhaps that haven't been foreseen um boris johnson dropping out of leadership elections at short notice but usually there's some kind of hint of something coming or even even in the times that we've gotten used to living the the so-called unprecedented period that the, the chattering classes have been taken aback by the decision of nicola sturgeon to step down as first minister of scotland and leader of the scottish national party there isn't a clear single reason why she's done it, that she is not at the moment beset by a single obvious scandal in the same way that Boris Johnson was with Partygate, mm. sort of manifested a lack of trust in her own party. She has been incredibly electorally successful. She, she's won in one form or another. She claims eight different elections. You can count she's fought three Westminster general elections, two Hollywood elections and a, the Scottish local elections. So she, her party remains dominant in the opinion poll. She has incredibly positive favourable ratings that even though they've narrowed in recent months, she's still ahead of it. The She herself didn't give a single reason why she's going now. She she stood up there and, and the, the, most, the most telling point she said was, divisions in her party over the direction of how to achieve Scottish independence. We can touch on that in a minute. But she also acknowledged that there is a personal toll to politics as well. Yeah. And, and no matter what you think of Nicola Sturgeon, and she she is, in her own words, a Marmite character, she has been an incredibly successful political leader. She has enjoyed personal and political popularity unparalleled. I mean, the fact that when she became First Minister of Scotland, uh, I, I was actually at the conference in 2014, back when I was still a journalist, covering that conference. And it was an amazing atmosphere. It was kind of the SNP very much in ascendancy then. Mm. Now there's a sense of how it does Sturgeon's departure, does this mark a new phase for the party? Is this a, a sort of a, a maturation beyond the the Salmon Sturgeon years, which have dominated the last two decades, three decades if you count the 10 years that Alex Salmon was in charge of the SNP in the 90s? So the party has to really think about where it goes next. But she leaves the party ostensibly, politically, a very strong inheritance. But equally, there are deep divisions and a real question mark over who and what comes next. 
now that she is going. Yes, well, we should discuss that. Then, what procedures are there in place? I mean, we know exactly what happens if Labour or Conservatives elect a new leader, and interminable apart from anything else. But, mm-hmm. um, but what happens with the SN, SNP? Do we know? Well, I, I'm pleased to say that. So, so first of all, let, let's say that the S. We have to start off by saying that this this leadership election is going to be very different for what the SNP has ever had. The last leadership election they had was nearly 20 years ago. Competitive leadership election was in 2004 when Alex Salmond came back in. And Nicola Sturgeon was herself then touted as a potential contender. But she reached a deal with Salmond at the time to run on a joint ticket. And she was his deputy for his 10 years in charge, his second 10 years in charge of the SNP up to his resignation in 2000 and. Uh, 14 mm. they've fallen out since then as well which you know that they, over, over the uh, the sex allegations that were put against him and, and disproved in court so there's that the SNP hasn't since then the membership has ballooned Scottish independence has become this it's almost been a it fair it's been a very present top tier political issue it hasn't ever really gone away because although the referendum happened eight and a half nine years ago now the SNP have continued to enjoy success and there's a real question about whether or not that has equated to people gravitating to the party because mm. of its populist progressive politics and I say populist more than progressive because that's Nicola Sturgeon's instinct as with Salmond although she is on the left wing of the SNP there used to be a, a right wing party as you remember the Tartan Tories in the 70s and 80s before Salmond took over now it isn't entirely clear where they go. Does that translate into support for independence? It, it, it's hovered around about 50%. And there's a real sense that this could be a generational thing, that support for independent Scotland may continue to grow. Uh, what is clear from Sturgeon is that this this was a valedictory lap of, of, of a politician I've not seen since Tony Blair departed the political scene. And bear in mind that Nicola Sturgeon is the head of a, you know, the head of a devolved government. She does have considerable parliament, but she's not... She, this, this, this. If if you if you'd said that she she behaved in a way, in the way she was treated in some ways was was almost like a national political leader, someone who's on par with a, a consequential prime minister. And I think that is is a testament to the way that she has projected herself and the way that she has governed, particularly during COVID. She became a very visible part of people's lives. There are big questions about how the SNP is is governing and has governed in Scotland and and, and the outcomes of that, but. The fact that a devolved political leader, Carmen Jones, for example, the former first minister of Wales, run his government for a similar amount of time, but he did, he got nowhere near the same send off or profile that Nicola Sturgeon has had, even though mm. that he had similar electoral successes and Welsh Labour has been dominant for much longer. Yes. So she has matured the office of first minister in the sense as a pulpit to rival that of even the prime minister. And the fact that she's last outlasted four conservative prime ministers now onto her fifth is a testament to her skill, but whether that's equated to better outcomes for Scotland. Well, that was about to say, I mean, what will her legacy be? I mean, clearly, electorally incredibly popular, both her and the party. But, you know, one thinks about taxes north of the border, education outcomes, um, performance of the NHS, the ferry um, fiasco, and and many others, which seem to have no real um, effect upon the electoral success of the SNP. But what do you think her legacy then will be? I think she's in a very curious position because under her, although she, although Alex Salmond 
arguably created this division. Nicola Sturgeon, I said, has led the SNP through a real grown-up phase. The fact that you know Salmond was in power from 2007 to 2014. Sturgeon has lasted longer than him. She's also had to deal with the sort of consequences, but also she came in in that interesting post-independence period when the government has devolved more powers to Scotland over income tax, over welfare. And the SNP has also had to face second, third, fourth terms in, in, in office that are dealing with the consequences of how they run Scotland. So say, for example, things like the health service are completely under the control of the SNP, higher mm. education. They have huge, it's it's arguably said one of the most powerful devolved parliaments in the world. There are big questions over how she's governed. Though. Yes, there have been very popular policies like free social care, free prescription charges, free higher education, but things like the education attainment gap have consistently troubled Nicola Sturgeon. That's actually worsened under the SNP's time in office. There's charges that they've overly centralised power in Holyrood and weakened local government in Scotland as a result of that. There are big questions about how the, the, the health service has been managed. And Nicola Sturgeon, in one form or another, has over, had overall responsibility for the NHS for most of her time in office, either as the Scottish Health Secretary yeah. or as First Minister. And her Health Secretary, Hamza Youssef, is touted to run in this leadership election, but his the fact that the NHS in Scotland is underperforming as badly as it is, as badly as it is in England as well, there's also a question, I think, that she's very, very much, I think uh, people have compared her resignation to Jacinda Ardern, the former Prime Minister. Yes. I think this is a mistake in comparison, actually, because Jacinda Ardern, A, was in office for a much shorter period of time. And yes, the pandemic is effective. But I think if you look at the way that Nicola Sturgeon has been covered, that in office, she has, I think she's more like an Angela Merkel figure. She almost belongs to a different political era. And obviously, Ms. Merkel had a, had, a, had a much longer political career. But again, Nicola Sturgeon made huge decisions about the way Scotland's governed. I think she's comparatively underscrutinized. But once Angela Merkel had left office a couple of years ago, the implications of her decisions on a whole variety of things began to be scrutinised much more closely by the media. And whilst Nicola Sturgeon is getting, I think, quite a valedictory lap from the media at the moment, and not from every quarter, it has to be said. I think some people like to give Douglas Ross, the leader of the Scottish Conservatives, who's otherwise a very unimpressive man, is due. He has really acknowledged that she is a very divisive figure, and the First Minister has said that herself. I think a lot of the ways the SNP have run Scotland, the way she ran it in particular, because she's been at the top of the tree for the whole time they've been in government, in one way or another, running, you know, having huge influence behind the scenes mm-hmm. and both and in public as well, that hasn't been examined. And I think that 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 the, the whoever is picking up the baton to become only the I think the fifth or sixth first minister of Scotland in the sort of mm-hmm. yeah, you know, over twenty-five years there's been devolution now is going to have to have a reckoning in that department as well. And they will also be dealing with this implications of policies that stretch back all the way now to 2007, which is a whole generation of people. And I've one party rule is always a downside in any democratic system, especially with the SNP in Scotland, I would say. Mike, a couple more questions I'd like to ask, but let's just take a, a, a breath, breath, give you a chance just just to, to pause and catch your breath. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. This is Simon Rose. You're listening to The Bigger Picture, where I'm in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian. We're talking about Nicola Sturgeon's surprise resignation. Um, Mike, what does it mean for the other parties? Um, Conservatives, um, Labour, Lib Dems not have much for president, even maybe maybe Alba. 
Well, I mean, <laughs> Scottish politics is... I used to cover Scottish politics years ago, but I still have a great deal of soft spot for it. As a, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating sphere, and it's very underexamined. Not least because the Scottish Greens are probably the ones we should look at first. Also, these are the SNP's US, basically yeah. coalition partners, yeah. and they they're actually they're the own they're the they're the highest level of government in any part of the country where the Scottish Greens are in at the, off, the Green Party in any form is in office. So at the moment, since two thousand and twenty-one. There's been a cooperation agreement Nicola Sturgeon agreed with the Scottish Greens that effectively gives his government an unassailable majority. And the Scottish Greens, like the SNP, are very pro-independence. So there's a pro-independence majority of the Scottish Parliament. I think that arrangement will continue. That that, But don't forget, I think it, to a certain extent, the Scottish Greens who are in government, that's Maggie Chapman, that's Patrick Harvey. Patrick Harvey particularly has been a long-standing figure in Scottish politics. That's going to change the dynamic inside that now. And I think this is probably an under-examined element because although the Scottish Greens are the junior partner, whoever takes over from Nicola Sturgeon is not going to have the same weight and experience by any degree. Even John mm. Swinney, who's the deputy, is only seen as a caretaker figure. They're not going to have the majority of support, I would say, within the SNP just because of the way the party is so big now. It's fractured. It's going to split. The so that dynamic internally will change. And I think the Scottish Greens will probably try and use that to their advantage for the remaining term of this parliament. It's got three years left to run. So that dynamic will change as well. So I think the Scottish Greens, they'll view it with a bit of trepidation, but I expect that to continue. And they will probably try and exert more influence inside the Scottish government as a result of that. Don't forget, they've been big proponents of the gender self-ID law that's become such a big story. And I think mm-hmm. it's probably overinflated in terms of importance when it comes to Nicholas reason why Nicholas Sturgeon is going, I would say, even though that law has plenty of controversial elements to it, not least of all the lowering of the age from 16, it's 18 to 16, 16 self-ID. Yeah. Let's look at the unionist parties. Lib Dems, I expect that they will make marginal gains. They've been fairly resilient in Scotland. They, I don't expect them to see a massive uptick in support for this. I think if there's a move to the left, then they'll probably pick up disaffected conservative voters as well who maybe look at Douglas Ross as being a less dynamic version of Ruth Davidson. Yeah. For Labour, this is a massive game changer. I've not spoken to anybody in the last sort of 24 hours or so. Bear in mind, this is, this is a, we're recording this only a day or so after Nicola Sturgeon announced she was stepping down. Who doesn't think Keir Starmer is going to benefit from this? And Anna Sawar as well, who is... Nicola Sturgeon has been in office at the same time as seven different leads of Scottish Labour. So since the independence referendum, Scottish Labour has been a bit of a death spiral. They have really struggled. They have, Anasawa has kind of come in. He's kind of edging up to kind of replace the Scottish Conservatives as being the second place party. And for a long time, because the SNP have been so dominant, because the Sturgeon branded Sam and Axis was so powerful, it still is. Sturgeon branded the SNP is still dominant. Scottish Labour had to accept being a distant third. But I think Keir Starmer will look at this and think, I can win more seats in Scotland now yes. because because he's facing a less experienced and more uncertain opponents. So Labour, I think, will undoubtedly benefit from this north of the border. And Asar particularly could now, he's now going to be someone who's viewed a bit more experienced, a bit more gravitas than whoever the first minister is, you know. So, but equally, it could go the other way. That If the SNP picks the right candidate, it could be that they lead the party in a different direction, find the magic form of words and independence that Harold Wilson would say would need be needed to hold a party together. The Scottish Conservatives, it's a bit more complicated because they are very much in decline. They have been dropping off since 2019. They lost seats. Ruth Davidson has 
stepped back now from the Scottish Parliament. She she was actually kind of playing a caretaker role until Douglas Ross went in. Mm. Douglas Ross is one of my favorite things about Douglas Ross is that he is a football linesman in his spare time. He actually focuses like an assistant referee in football, mm. which is seems doesn't strike me as sort of a profession of a of a particular potential first minister. I think realistically, no, none of them expect there to be a dramatic reversal. That the, the SNP may face a rout before the next election, but at the moment, everyone's got their eyes on the Westminster elections in 2024. Mm. I think I'd expect Labour to benefit from this, the Scottish Conservatives to continue to decline. The Lib Dems will probably pick up a few votes of Labour. So very good news for Keir Starmer. Mm. Undoubtedly, he's going to have an easier campaign in Scotland, I think, which could only benefit Labour in the long run. Well, as we're talking about Keir Starmer, how splendid, just to lead on to our next topic, which is uh, Keir Starmer uh, banning Jeremy Corbyn from running as a Labour candidate. It's not that long since he was hoping that Jeremy Corbyn was going to become Prime Minister and was campaigning for that. Well, this is the thing. So I I have to be careful what I say here, because uh, I think that the context of this is that yesterday, the Equality and Human Rights Commission finally ruled that Labour does not need to be monitored anymore for the degree of anti-Semitism inside the Labour Party that was Hmm. it was investigating that this is what led to Mr Corbyn's suspension when the ECHR published its report. And Mr Corbyn said that the uh, the claims of anti-Semitism have been over-exaggerated. That's that those claims that that were those words Mr. Corbyn never sat easy with me. I think that actually it was a severe issue in Labour. I would never try and trivialise it mm-hmm. as a subject matter. And I think there is a reason when Keir Starmer was elected, the first thing he said was when he was elected Labour leader, just under three years ago now, I apologize for this. We're going to move on from it. That said, I think that we have to look at the context of the, the intervening period that this is an issue where Keir Starmer has spent too much time and political capital on, particularly the suspension of Mr Corbyn. And there's a particular phrase in the speech, I was reflecting on this the other day, when Starmer made his speech about saying, he used a door metaphor, you know, he's not a great orator, but he's certainly become more confident. I think he projects himself now with much more authority as a political leader, a potential prime minister, not as a dynamic campaigner, but certainly someone you think you could imagine being comfortable exercising authority. And he's certainly shown you can do that with suspending Mr Corbyn. He... He said, look, the door's open. If you want to leave, leave. If you want to come back in, come back in. And yet later on, he said, except Jeremy Corbyn. Jeremy Corbyn can't come back in. Now, as far as I have seen to this day, and Mr. Corbyn does divide opinion. He's a Marmite figure. I accept at the best of times. There is no sign of contrition for him, I think, about, I think he takes it far too personally, as you might do if you were him. You know, people people say that he has a blind spot for anti-Semitism on an issue. It's, it's a view I, I personally think I share. I think there's plenty to suggest that he does, but I don't think he's anti-Semitic himself, but he gets far too, as you might expect, personally involved in that. For Keir Starmer, though, he can't say on the one hand, come and go as you please but not you, Jeremy Corbyn. I think it would have been better for him to have said yesterday, do you know what? The door's open for Jeremy to come back in. All he has to do is agree with the findings of the report. And then effectively yes. that puts the emphasis back on Jeremy Corbyn. In banning Mr. Corbyn, Starmer makes Starmer's done this because he wants to try and draw a line under the whole business. Actually, it's not a smart decision in my opinion. I think it, it spent, he's spending too much time at the moment courting the right-wing press. There are articles in The Express, The Times, The Telegraph at the moment – you know, talk about sound money, talk about that. And Labour has a 20 point poll lead and they are, I think, rightly cautious, but there's too much time going in. And it's the same with Kinnock and militant tendency in the 1980s as well. And I would never draw the same equivalent comparison with anti but it's the same issue of taking on the left in that broad comparison as well. Obviously, 
the degree to which the left was in control and also there were these horrible allegations of racism against um, Jewish people mm. at that time and a lot of cases that were proven and the, you know, the Equality and Human Rights Commission found evidence of that but equally a lot of since then you know, things like the Ford Review haven't been discussed as well this is an internal labour matter in, in suspending Corbyn Starmer is perpetrating that example except all, all he had to do yesterday was say do you know what Jeremy's welcome back anytime I sat around the shadow cabinet table with him but I don't agree with what he said it's up to him to yeah, say which this seems per- yeah seems perfectly why reasonable. he didn't do well, that I don't yeah. know I think it's a waste of time and political capital to keep him t- t- to have made that declaration I think he's overcorrecting for it personally and will Corbyn go quietly of course he would no, I mean this is the um all it does is it emboldens the trouble is that Labour's current cohort the Parliamentary Labour Party about 20% of them about 40 MPs make up the left wing Labour grouping that are broadly supportive of Corbyn Mm. so Diane Abbott's in that John McDonnell a lot of younger MPs as well my big worry is this is just a what if scenario I keep thinking back to next election people say that if Starmer gets a swing equivalent that Blair had in 97 he gets a majority of one now if that majority of one is denied because Jeremy Corbyn runs at Islington North and Labour suddenly hasn't got a majority, Starmer looks a bit silly. And also, he opens himself up to a question that Emily Maitlis asked on the other on the news agents podcast the other day. And you said it yourself. If Starmer feels this strongly about it, why on earth did he resign from the shadow cabinet, go onto the back benches and you know, do what a lot of people, you know, Chukramunu, um, Luciana Berger, all these ghosts from Christmas past here said we don't agree mr corbyn we're leaving the party or we'll be on the back benches he stayed around the shadow cabinet table he was happy to endorse him he was happy to cozy up to him during the leadership election Mm. he would have known what was going on he was a senior member of the shadow cabinet and there are it's a baffling decision to waste the time i think yes and if he'd gone if he'd done what you suggest that probably would not a problem um, it puts the emphasis back odd. on mr corbyn i think it puts yes. the emphasis where it needs to be which is yeah, on jeremy yeah. corbyn not yeah. at the mate starmer's made himself the target he said i am the man who can control your fate yes. well yes you can but you don't want to make that don't want to paint the target on yourself because at the moment jeremy corbyn will he'll either go as a martyr or he'll run again in islington north and mm. it'll be a distraction either way starmer's starmer's made a whole series of headaches down the line between now and the general election and if yeah. it costs labor a majority and sucks support away i would not be surprised Mike, two fascinating topics, and I know you've got lots you want to talk about, but we're nearly out of time. So, is that choose choose one? But it'll have to be a relative. I think, I think we okay. We, we are going to segue back to Brexit. Funny enough, um, Diane Abbott saying Corbyn yesterday was a Brexiteer was something that got a lot of uh, attention. But we are in a different era now. Rishi Sunak is trying to get an agreement on the Northern Ireland Protocol. Yes, we're back on that again. Talk this week of a flurry of activity between the UK and the EU on trying to get the protocol working better again. Don't forget, this governs the movement of goods from the UK into Northern Ireland, into the and vice versa. Customs border down the Irish Sea, national border like that, that sort of weird cross shape. There's positive news, I think, coming out this week from the EU saying they've praised the Prime Minister's constructive attitude here that I think Mr Sonak's more technocratic approach means that he's more comfortable engaging with officials than the politicised approach, say, of early Theresa May, of Boris Johnson, of certainly Liz Truss. The issue is then going to be getting it through the Conservative Parliamentary Party, because although um, Sunak has a a big majority, he does also have to square the DUP. He also has to square the the European Research Group. In the end, he might just think, have to exert himself a bit and say, do you know what? This is this is above party politics. This is what this is what's best for the people of Northern Ireland. 
I want to make this work well. And I think you may have to take a hit on this too. But given the fact the Prime Minister is constantly a bit of a people pleaser, I do wonder, Simon, about whether or not he's going to have the guts to stick to whatever deal he reaches. But behind the scenes, anything that results in a lowering of those tensions, anything that sees a ratcheting down of those tensions between the UK and the EU that were heightened by David Frost, Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, the Brexiteers that dominated the cabinet for so long. And don't forget, Mr Sunak is himself a Brexiteer. He's a committed visionary for leaving the European Union. Anything that does that, anything that leads the legal action that's currently going on from both sides to see that being dropped and focuses on a competent solution. This is probably the last window, though, to get it done. We are in the long campaign for 2024 already. We're 18 months out for a general election, max, I would say. It's probably a lot less than that. If Sunak went in the summer of 2024 or even sooner, I would not be surprised, given the news the recession is going to be shallower, inflation is falling. If he deals with the small boats issue as well, he may go soon if the, if, if the Tories get a bounce in the opinion polls. But... Yes, dead this cat is, bounce. Th- yes. This is this is the last window to get something, yeah. a good technocratic solution. And at the end of the day, that's what needs to be done. We have to look at the process here and what works best to get the protocol issue to a reasonably comfortable place, I would say. Fascinating. I mean, it's been quite refreshing having new things to, t- to talk about. Nicholas Sturgeon should resign uh, yeah, every week. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mike, thank you very much indeed. That's Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. I hope we'll be back with me in a fortnight's time. But that's it for this edition of The Bigger Picture. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.